Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. One of the issues that keeps on coming up in our daily show is what the pandemic tells us about the current state of America. Many people are quite pessimistic. And Applebaum, for example, who we talked to a couple of weeks, a special correspondent for The Atlantic magazine, argues that it reflects a fundamental decline in American state and in American values and society. Uh, one of my old friends who has a particularly, I think, interesting view of America is Soli Ozel. He's one of Turkey's best-known political commentators. He teaches at the Kadir Has University in Istanbul. He's also a fellow at the Institut Montaigne in Paris. So he has a, a very much of a European perspective on America, but he's also spent much of his life actually living in the United States. He studied at Johns Hopkins University and then at Berkeley. We were actually uh, at one point studying together. Uh, Solly, how is life in Istanbul? Well, life is in Istanbul is, is a life of a lockdown. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, for these four days, Thursday through Sunday, we're not supposed to go out at all. Uh, so we're in quarantine. Although because uh, the religious, the holy month of Ramadan for the Muslim world is starting uh, Saturday morning. Uh, there are a few hours on Thursday, today and tomorrow when people can go out and shop for their necessities. After that, you cannot really leave home. Uh, on Monday, we'll re revert back to normal, which is those who can afford to confine themselves will confine themselves. Others will have to go. Uh, to work uh, and uh, try to manage these things. Obviously, the government is very keen on um, going back to business as usual, open up shops and stuff. Uh, and uh, so far, if not the contamination figures, definitely the death figures in Turkey give a relatively uh, benign picture. Uh, and... Uh, the government believes that the worst will be over probably at the beginning of May. And I suspect that after the uh, month of Ramadan is over, which is followed by a three and a half day holiday, uh, they will try to uh, ask people to actually go back to their normal lives uh, if the uh, figures don't get worse by then. So, Sully, what is the view of America from Istanbul, or at least your view? Does this... Uh, I mean, it's a crisis, obviously, all over the world, but the particularly acute crisis in America, the, the, the fact that many more people in America have this virus than anywhere else in the world, the fact that we aren't coming up with uh, an ability to test it, the, uh, it seems the profound incompetence of the regime, of the Trump regime to actually deal with the crisis. What does it tell you about American decline in the world system? Okay. Well, 
again, like many American colleagues, uh, like love actually to remind us that the uh, decline of America has been the top topic or trending topic in today's language uh, many times before and every time the comeback kid or the comeback nation did come back. Uh, and I beg to differ. I find some of the, the writings that I read, and I do read quite a lot of them, uh, akin to actually whistling in the dark. I want to start actually with uh, an Applebaum who's... Uh, name you mentioned, I was quite impressed by her piece. Very early on when the pandemic hit the United States frontally, a piece he published in, in The Atlantic uh, in which he compared the attack of the virus against the United States, so to say, to and, and actually identified it as um, America's uh, Commodore Perry moment. Meaning mm, yeah. when Commodore Perry went to Japan, the Japanese thought that they were on top of the world. They were not prepared for such a challenge. And it turns out that they were actually weak. That Therefore, that led to the major revolution. And her question was, which I think is a pertinent question, is the United States going to continue with its lethargic, um, complacent attitude with old elites, self-serving a lot of them, very happy that they have built the best thing, whatever. And, and, and then those who hate them, who have actually brought Trump to life, thinking that they can actually dissociate themselves totally from the rest of the world and basically uh, go under the guidance of an irrational, uh, self-centered leader and then basically fulfill their own irrational fantasies that we see in this give me freedom or give me COVID-19 signs that I kind of like so on TV, which I found actually mind-boggling. Now, and it is true, obviously, and, and you know, you and I sat in classes when we discussed with our professors and our, call and our peers in class whether or not uh, structural conditions or agency of people were more important in determining the course of history. That's a that's a famous, but not just a Marxian, but also a Weberian question, and that is obviously a very pertinent question. And uh, many people looking at the United States think that it doesn't really matter who comes to power in the United States; that it would always be America's interest that will take precedence. Oh well, but it also makes a difference how you define America's interest and its relations to the world, as well as whether or not you have the competence to run that kind of a country. Now. Imagine that if this if this virus hit the United States in 2015 with Barack Obama in power, what ir irrespective of what one thinks over Obama and whether he was a successful president or not, you know that he would actually take this very seriously. He would try to behave rationally. After all, he is like Dr. Mr. Spock. Uh, and, and the response would be much more coordinated, much more inclusive. And ego matters were not going to intrude in the management of this crisis on the part of the American federal government. Of course, with Trump, we have the total opposite situation. And uh, we now have enough reports in um, credible, enough credible reports in the media that he does not particularly like that he has been informed and warned by his close associates by security agencies that this was something very serious, something had to be done, but he actually 
allowed two months to go to waste because he did not want to uh, bother uh, the um, stock exchange or didn't want to stop the economy, which he was counting on riding uh, to, to election time. Now, of course, you have just, I just read that 4.4 million more people have been added to the ranks of the unemployed in the United States, which takes the total number in only five weeks to 26 million people. It's a disaster. And that, of course, completes the triad, if you will, for the for the image of the United States. The image of the United States was that it knew strategically what it uh, wanted to do and that it could always get, although that was not historically necessarily correct, as we've seen in Vietnam, that it would get what it wants strategically. That went down the drain in the trillion-dollar wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq. In Afghanistan, you end up giving back power effectively to the people that you have deposed uh, 19 years ago. And in Iraq, it's basically a big uh, failure. And no matter how you try to quote it, it will remain a failure. Secondly, came second came the 2008 financial crisis that originated in the United States, which then laid to rest the American claim that they knew how to manage uh, the the world economy. But thankfully, American institutions have reacted professionally, competently, in order to make sure that this recession did not turn into a deeper deeper depression uh, a la 1930s. Then, despite all of that, everybody held the image that America was still a very competent place, that after, if they messed something up, they would come back and then they will be able to actually master the situation. That understanding of, or that appreciation of America's competence, that America as a competent power has been laid to, if not to rest, but definitely has been severely damaged by the way uh, the Trump administration managed this crisis, conducted itself, and the way um, a, a very, very divided, very polarized American society is actually reacting. Uh, therefore, um, it will take a lot of effort, a lot of wisdom, and a lot of actually commitment to change the ways of the United States in serious ways by an alternative administration, if Trump happens to lose the elections in, in November, to restore some of that that has been lost to the United States in the last 20 years. Uh, Sully, last week, uh, Kishore Mabubani, who I think yeah, you from know, Singapore, uh, yes, yeah, Singapore-based writer who has who, who's just come out with a book about how China has won. Uh, last week, the the Economist had a uh, a cover saying that China has won. Uh, sitting in Istanbul, which um, is uh, uh, an interesting position, I guess, in terms of the Chinese. Uh, do you see a fundamental restructuring of the architecture of international politics in terms of the United States and China? Is this pandemic proof that China now is at the very minimum an equal power to the United States in the international system? It may be a bit early to determine whether they're co-equals, uh, but uh, it appears that we're moving to definitely we're moving to a non-unipolar world. I mean, if unipolar was a concept that didn't particularly attract me even when it was it first came out, but obviously the American moment 
or the unipolar moment for the United States is way over. And uh, the, a new architecture is emerging, as you as you rightly suggested. Whether this is going to be a bipolar one, as we've seen in the um, during the Cold War, or as the Chinese used to uh, play with a few years ago, whether it would be one major power, which would be the United States, and a number of great powers, or which, of course, the Chinese would be the most important. Now, of course, when that idea was being uh, tossed around, Xi Jinping was not yet at the helm. And of course, with Xi Jinping, we've seen, we witnessed a, a, a transformation of the way China related to the rest of the world. It's a far more, China now is a far more assertive power, although it's not really, uh, it does not really have in, in its foreign, in the conduct of its foreign policy, as I see it, the attributes of a hegemon, because a hegemon must also act a bit collectively or must enjoy at least giving the image that they're acting collectively. The Chinese prefer not to be acting collectively. They do take care of problems uh, bilaterally, but there is no doubt that they now feel confident enough to challenge to challenge the United States. And uh, there, But there is also, of course, their responsibility in the way this... Um, pandemic really got of got out of hand and no uh, no uh, no matter how far they go in sending lots of equipment and even money to different parts of the world and all that they will really have to come up clean with uh, what they haven't done as well as what they have done from uh, late november or early december onwards when the uh, existence of the virus was known by their local authorities who haven't warned their national authorities and then the national authorities that did not really take the necessary steps to actually prevent the spread the spread of this of this virus anyway yes we will be moving to a world uh, that where china in particular but asia in general is going to be are going to be far more important and that's only normal uh, because 40 years ago when uh, china undertook uh, uh, capitalist development under under the leadership of the Ch- Chinese Communist Party, every fifth person in the world was Chinese, and the Chinese produced only about 1 or 1.2% of the world GDP. Forty years later, China is about 16% of the world economy, the second largest economy in the world, and if in purchasing power parity terms, it is the leading economy in the world according to the IMF as of 2004. Therefore, uh, you cannot have that kind of great economic uh, power shift without a corresponding political and strategic shift. Now, Obama... Sorry, where's the wind blowing in Istanbul uh, in in terms of uh, political intellectuals? Is there increasingly a debate amongst intellectuals between, if you like, the Chinese and the American model between... Technocratic authoritarianism and chaotic, dysfunctional democracy. Well, I mean, among the um, um, Islamist circles in this country, if you will, this crisis is the seal of their belief that uh, the final seal for their belief that uh, the West has been in inexorable decline and now it's cracking up. I mean, it's just sinking. Uh, there are a lot of others, uh, per, let's say, probably in the more secular camp, although in the secular camp as well, there are plenty who don't like the West, 
certainly do not like the United States, who do think that this is a terminal crisis uh, of the West, uh, but uh, others who think that uh, it is a crisis. Obviously, there is a new reality we have to reckon with. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they also see the uh, capacities in the Western world, if the, um, uh, if the regimes or if the governments and the populations can actually get their act together, and it's a big if, admittedly, in view of what had happened in the past two, three months, uh, that it, it will come back. At any rate, I am, I am of, that, of that group in the following sense. I don't see the Chinese yet ready to actually assume the responsibility of creating a world order the way the United States did from 1944 onwards, uh, about basically between 1944 and 1951. All the institutions, rules, regulations, and all that of the Cold War order on the capitalist democratic camp were put in place. And the United States has undertaken it by itself. The so-called wise men actually constructed that order, which the Trump now, that is the architect's descendant, is trying to is trying to destroy. I am not convinced yet that the Chinese are there. And we will see how this will go. And that will be one of the important things we will have to look at after the American elections in, in November. Uh, and a non-Trump administration may will be a very different story than a continuation of the Trump administration. Otherwise, there will also have to be roles for a, a Europe which is still an economically significant power with no political or strategic either mind or weight at all in world affairs, and a Russia which is economically actually not a very significant power, but because of its vast uh, landmass and uh, its agility in using its geopolitical power to prevent things from happening that it does not like, uh, will have will have a will have a role to play as well. Now, the question is going to be, for me, the following. Yes, we may have a bipolar world or a you know, bipolar kind of, but uh, a multipolar or bipolar world with uh, supporting actors, if you will. But it, this pandemic has shown decisively, in my view, that however the nation states may be coming back when the borders are going to be reinforced uh, we will be looking inwards and, you know, migration is going to stop. We will not like the migrants or the refugees and stuff. It also gave us the message very clearly that there are problems in the world that can only be addressed collectively. And therefore, uh, one of the calamities of today is that at a time when China and the United States really ought to work together, they choose not to. Uh, maybe on the American side, it's because of the idiosyncrasies of the president, but on the Chinese side as well, because of the chip on their shoulder about the beginning, and then probably their resentment of the of the American administration's attitude towards them. So, and so my question, therefore, for the post-pandemic, if not, may, there may not be a post-pandemic period later on, but after the immediate crisis whether or not nation states will be able, and, and societies for that matter, will be able to recognize the fact that even if you do turn inwards, there will still have to be some collective action. And for that collective action, we do have the institutions currently present. They may have turned dysfunctional after 70 years of existence, but we can always rehabilitate them. Whether or not we will show collectively that wisdom is for me one of the big questions uh, for the 
post-coronavirus period. So, Sully, uh, finally, uh, but quite briefly, uh, you talk about this turning inwards. Uh, you haven't talked, though, about the impact of the pandemic on current democracies, both in the United States, uh, neo-democracies or democracies in inverted commas, perhaps in Turkey, the United States, certainly Eastern Europe, places like Hungary and Poland have shifted quite dramatically over the last couple of months towards authoritarianism. Do you see the pandemic as being, if you like, the final nail in the coffin of many uh, democracies in Eastern Central Europe, perhaps in uh, in your area of the world too, and perhaps even in the United States? Well, the thing is, look, Hungary was on the road to become a despotic place for a long time, and it just used, or Orban used this crisis as a wonderful opportunity to move forward. I think Trump is trying to do the same thing. That's why the November elections are so very important, and Poland, the same story. On the other hand, in many of the other Central and Eastern European countries, which incidentally did not have anywhere near the kind of um, uh, crisis, health crisis as the as the Western as their Western European counterparts, um, things have been moving one step forward, one step backwards, perhaps. But there, the, um, the 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 domestic democratic systems have not been challenged as much. Secondly. Uh, Korea, Taiwan, democratic countries, uh, New Zealand, have Canada, have, they really have managed to run uh, their affairs within the confines of the, of the democratic system. And in the United States as well, obviously, of the 50 states, plenty have acted very responsibly and very responsibly to their own constituencies. Now, the uh, struggle between presumably efficient uh, authoritarian systems and the presumably chaotic or dysfunctional democratic systems will continue. I don't think it's the final nail on the coffin, but the, the liberal democratic systems have been under challenge definitely since 2008, but actually that, that challenge has begun in the late 1990s because of the way globalization was organized and managed. And unless they actually turn the way power and wealth are distributed domestically, the resentful populist reinsurgencies are going to erupt time and again everywhere else, and they will lead them in a more authoritarian way. Finally, for all countries, because of the fear that uh, the pandemic has inflicted in us, uh, um, everyone willingly is, is giving their rights and their freedoms to the states in order to get protection in return. We know from history that the states do not necessarily return what they have gotten from societies that easily or voluntarily themselves. And these are going to be some of the struggles uh, for uh, freedom and, and, and democracy in the future. I am not despondent. I really don't think the game is over, but it will be a difficult, it will be a difficult um move or difficult march to regaining our freedoms and a lot will fall on a lot of responsibility will fall on the elites in democratic countries which in my mind have acted rather irresponsibly in the in the previous period there was let me conclude with one reference there was an article by daniel markowitz in yesterday's new york times 
He has written a book on um, on, on on the elites and all that. Uh, that's last year, and he is proposing actually a once uh, a wealth tax for the top five percent of wealth owners uh, and beyond two and a half million dollars to be uh, imp- to be asked for once and a wealth tax. And unless inequality is addressed frontally and rather radically, I suspect democracies are going to be under the threat of populist insurgencies that will invariably turn into more authoritarian systems. That's how I see things. So one way we can keep our freedom is by reading more books, which gives us perspective on these things. A couple of, uh, to, to end, uh, Solly, a couple of books that people might look at while they're stuck at home yeah. in this pandemic. I, I have two uh, recommendations. Uh, one of them is a thicker book by... Uh, MIT professors Daron Ajemolu and James Robinson, their latest book, they are the authors of Why Nations Fail, which was a pretty popular book, called The Narrow Corridor, which tells you how difficult it is to actually institute a liberal democratic order. And the second one is by a conservative thinker, a New York Times writer. I don't necessarily agree with his outlook in life, but I think this book is a think thoughtful one that actually provokes you to think as well. And I find this very uh, inspirational, if you will. And it's a shorter book. It's The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success by Ross Luthat. I would recommend those two books. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.